Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Popular Journal Podcast of your host, Jarrell. We have a good episode coming up for you guys. Today, we're going to be diving into streaming culture and the effect it has on us. If this is your first time listening to the Popular Journal Podcast, this is the podcast where I talk about all things I find interesting within pop culture. I love learning new things, and I want to share what I learned with you guys here on the podcast. I post a new episode bi-weekly, so be sure to come back as we are always having fun and engaging conversations here on the Popular Journal. Guys, an important announcement. We are nearing the end of season one of the Popular Journal podcast. As such, I will be taking a break after the last episode to focus on making season two better and much more enjoyable. So the survey linked in the episode description of the podcast, like in all my episodes, it really, really helps a lot in shaping the future of the podcast. I'm going to see what type of direction the podcast should go in going forward, and I want to make the Popular Journal as successful as it can get. I'm very, very excited about where the podcast can go from here, hopefully only up, and I remain optimistic for the future of this podcast and looking forward to where it will take me going forward. So I'm very excited for that. With all that out of the way, I just want to jump into today's topic. So streaming has been a prominent thing since the late 2000s. With television becoming a thing of the past and losing its grip on households, I wanted to take a look into the overall landscape of streaming services from television to music and see how it's affecting us on a national and maybe even global scale. We talked about this briefly about how streaming affects writers in, ep- in episode six of the podcast, where we talked about you know the WGA and SAG AFTRA strikes, which has hit around 112 days for the WGA uh, during the making of this podcast episode. Uh, residuals work a little differently for writers when it comes to shows on streaming services versus traditional television. Again, like we talked about in episode six. However, I also wanted to talk about how streaming affects the consumer as well. It's no secret that almost every media company wants to have a slice of the streaming pie along with Netflix. You know, companies like Disney, NBC, and Paramount have released their streaming platforms in recent years. But with the influx of all these media companies launching their own streaming platform, one has to wonder, does this defeat the purpose of cord cutting? You know, it's no surprise that with the plethora of options to choose from, you know, with these streaming platforms, the overload of options overwhelms a lot of consumers. It feels like replacing one cable box with another. Cord cutting is not a relatively recent phenomenon, You know, people have been abandoning traditional television for streaming services, you know, for a a while. Um, And it seems like this event of, you know, cord cutting doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. Okay, so I wanted to read an article from Todd Spangler of Variety where he talks about cord cutting and how these these TV companies are sort of losing like a lot of subscribers. Uh, so basically, as streaming video continues its ascendancy, cable, satellite, and internet TV providers in the U.S. turned in their worst subscriber losses to date in the first quarter of 2023, collectively shedding 2.3 million customers in the period, according to analyst estimates. Comcast, the largest paid TV provider in the country, dropped 614,000 video customers in the quarter one, the most of any single company, to stand at 15.53 million at the end of the period. Asked about dwindling video business on the company's earnings call, David Watson, president and CEO of Comcast Cable, acknowledged 
the reality of cord cutting instead the operator's approach is to not subsidize the unprofitable video relationships. He added, we'll fight hard whether it's acquisition, base management, or retention. So it's important to us, but we have figured out a way to manage it financially. End quote. Uh, moving forward with the article, um, he also writes, is there a bottom insight for the pay TV industry? Moffat Nathanson has argued that the pay TV floor is between 50 million and 60 million U.S. homes. But Moffat wrote in the last report, as things stand, we expect cord cutting to grow even worse and the long theorized floor to be breached. Again, uh, this entire article was written by Todd Spangler of Variety. But this definitely has truth to it as you know my family got rid of the cable box in favor of youtube tv and i've also seen within the article that a lot of people voted that they believe more families will drop pay tv packages in favor of streaming services over the next five years which i found very compelling in how this sentiment is shared with many people traditional television of course you know it's not dead but it's not in good standing either even with practices of Netflix stopping shared passwords among its users, as well as other streaming platforms following suit, that doesn't seem to be stopping the streaming giant at all. One can only guess where uh, traditional television will end up in the foreseeable future, but as of right now, it's not looking too good for traditional television. Um, Streaming services are now in abundance, from Netflix to Hulu to Disney Plus to Max. People have a lot to choose from in the type of content they wish to consume, But do they have too many choices to choose from? Almost half of streaming uh, users in the United States say they feel overwhelmed by the sheer amount of programming on streaming services, but they have no plans to cut back. Those are key findings from a Nelson report analyzing the state of streaming. The report titled State of Play uses data from the company's TV and streaming ratings. Insights from Nelson's GraceNote continue recognition service and a survey of streaming users to offer a snapshot at where things are. The survey reveals that 46% of streaming consumers feel overwhelmed by the by the ever-increasing number of platforms and titles available to them, which can make it tougher to find specific titles in a specific place, and no wonder. As of February, according to Nelson, there are 817,000 unique programs, titles, series, movies, specials, and other programming available via streaming services, an increase of some of 171,000 titles, 26.5% since the end of 2019. Uh, this was written by Rick Porter of The Hollywood Reporter. Adding on uh, to the article where he writes, the continued increase in the amount of available content has meant a corresponding rise in time spent streaming. Streaming consumption totaled 169.4 billion minutes in February, an 18% rise from a year earlier, 143.2 billion minutes. Streaming has consistently accounted for about 28% of total TV usage over the past 10 months, when Nielsen began releasing its monthly snapshots of viewing by platform. And lastly, in the article, he also writes, we've entered the next phase of streaming. Based on the trends, we have been detailing about streaming over the past few years. Brian Fuhrer, Senior VP Product Strategy at Nelson, said in a statement, we've moved from infancy into adolescence and all the complexities that one would expect at that point. It's not just that streaming is increasing year over year. Now consumers want access simplified and the explosion of services has renewed discussions around building and aggregation. Ultimately, these challenges signal an opportunity as the industry harnesses streaming for long-term business growth. Again, entire article uh, written by Rick Porter of The Hollywood Reporter. Um, And sorry if I butchered any names. Again, not good names. I'm not good with them. But streaming services have affected the music industry as well. 
uh, with streaming applications like Spotify and Pandora, effectively wounding radio. You know, radio isn't dead as of today, but it's not exactly the most popular way to listen to music nowadays. I mean, I can only speak for myself. I rarely listen to radio anymore. You know, maybe sometimes, but, you know, not a lot. How lesser-known indie artists make money on streaming platforms is actually quite striking. Is music streaming bad for musicians? It may well be the case that more musicians rather than fewer can now earn money from recorded music. But it seems clear that the current system retains the striking inequalities and generally poor working conditions that categorize its predecessor. Public debate will benefit with more careful formulation of critique and and consideration of evidence, which might well depend upon... MSS, a music industry business, being more open and transparent about the usage and payments. Nevertheless, it is surely a good thing that issues of justice and fairness regarding musicians are now so widely aired and reform is being actively discussed. This is a scholarly article on Is Music Streaming Bad for Musicians? Problems of Evidence and Argument from Sage Journals by David Hesenmald. Uh, butcher that name, I'm sorry. But creatives seem to get affected by the ongoing trends that occur within the entertainment industry, you know, whether that be AI, streaming residuals, or the ongoing strikes. Streaming services for music itself actually have a lot of issues in how it affects how we interact with music as a whole. Dating all the way back to stream- to the streaming site Napster. Does anyone remember Napster? Um, probably not, but... Napster was a very early music streaming platform in the late 90s, early 2000s, before it was eventually shut down. Napster was shut down in 2001 after a successful court injunction was granted to the Recording Industry Association of America. However, the idea of like listening to you know all these musics and these albums and these artists on like in a convenient way, like on your phone or your computer, like that never really went away it stayed within the public consciousness and we see the effects of that like literally to this day um having delved into the topic a little bit more it appears that streaming music has had a bit of an impact on the recording industry um recording artists are now more aware that they have to keep their listeners attention especially within the first 30 seconds of a track Artists have to create music, especially, you know, with all this in mind. With the album on the wane and attention spans shorter than ever, the first 30 seconds of a song matter more than. Not only do they need to capture the listener's attention, but in streaming, they determine if the songwriter is going to get paid at all. Skip rates can make or break a song, a record, or even an artist's career. On a practical level, royalties don't kick in until at least 30 seconds of a song have played. But in an era where data is driving A&R and marketing decisions as well as playlists driven by algorithms, exactly how long listener stays engaged with, with the song matters more than ever. This is by Elias Light of Rolling Stone. It is crazy to think that streaming and royalties are affecting how music is produced and distributed. You know, like how just like the 30 seconds of your song can like, cause like effects so much and i bet like you know people back in the olden days they didn't really have to think about this when they were making music but nowadays this is something that is essentially a, an important factor having reading um these articles and it's a pretty widespread sentiment that streaming sort of cheapens the music experience you know as great as it is to have thousands if not millions of songs conveniently within the palm of your hand is an amazing thing no doubt But there's also this idea that it makes music less riveting, less powerful, and just sort of background noise. I can understand where this sentiment is coming from, 
because sometimes people do use music for you know background noise for schoolwork or just work maybe for ambiance for an event whatever the case may be because sometimes i do that too however i am also someone that gets lost within my music you know i'm such a big music fan I love listening to music. I listen to music all the time. And I haven't really gone to a lot of concerts so far, but I love listening to music. And I think streaming is great for someone like me who can't really sit down and buy vinyls all the time. Um, I used to get CDs and download them from my computer onto my MP3. <laughs> and it's so great not having to do that anymore, um, which is great. And I also discover artists I would have never even heard of if it not were, if it, weren't for streaming. And a lot of musicians nowadays have had their careers grow from the internet. A lot of artists gain traction from social media apps such as TikTok, and that really changes the game for music as a whole. But there are some criticisms when it comes to streaming music platforms, such as not properly paying artists, the disconnect between artists and fans, and the carbon footprint these services leave. And I wonder if these issues will be addressed moving forward as we adapt to these new ways of attaining music. And I'm curious to see how they'll be resolved in the future, even if they're addressed at all. So I'm very curious to see where that will go. But the biggest thing with streaming entertainment is choice overload. Jumping back to a previous point, I think that is the main issue I personally have with streaming platforms as a whole, mostly in regard to television and movies. There are so many streaming platforms now that it almost feels like cable channels, which is something most people want to avoid in the first place. Um, want to watch this show? Well, it's on Peacock. Oh, you want to watch your favorite show from when you were younger? It was on Netflix, but now it's on Hulu. But it's still on Netflix, just not in your country. You know, stuff like that. It it Everybody wanted to jump in the Netflix pool. And that's why we have, you know, what we have today with all these streaming platforms and all these companies jumping in and throwing their hat in the ring. Sometimes you can forget about the streaming services you're even subscribed to in the first place. The proliferation of streaming and the novelty of the subscription video on-demand interface are contributing to paralysis among consumers grappling with too much choice, according to Nielsen's latest total audience report. Among adult SVOD users, only one-third of them report browsing the menu of a streaming service to find content to watch, with 21% saying they simply give up watching if they are not able to make up their minds. In the more traditional pay TV realm, by contrast, 58% of viewers told Nielsen they're more likely to go back to their favorite channels if they find themselves unable to make a choice about what to watch, as reported by Dade Hayes of Deadline from a 2019 article. Let me continue reading more of the article. Think about the last time you or your loved ones decided to sit down and watch TV, listen to new tunes, or stream a program. Cass and Gris wrote, Were you stuck in decision purgatory endlessly checking out previews, unable to make an actual choice? And how much do you think the paradox of choice costs programmers, content owners, brands, and marketers? Surely nobody wins when potential consumers get frustrated by the amount of choice or simply unappealing options and ultimately decide to just go to sleep instead. Lastly, in the article, in the streaming arena, having access to hundreds of shows and movies can make the decision-making process a lengthy one. The average U.S. adult takes 7.4 minutes to make a selection on a streaming service. Adults 18 to 34 take 9.4 minutes while 35 to 51 while 35 to 54s need 8.4 minutes. Viewers 50 and older abandon discovery after about 5 minutes and just dive into something. Again, reported by Dade Hayes of Deadline from a 2019 article. Choosing what you want to watch from a library of content can be frustrating and overwhelming. And even with streaming platforms removing certain films and shows from their services without the possibility of return, 
I wonder how streaming will evolve going forward. In regards to the future of streaming, I found an article that talks about original streaming movies and how they're in, you know, the decline. Time is the measure of success or failure in the streaming world. Gal Gadot's Heart of Stone earned 143 million hours in his first 10 days of Netflix availability. That fell short of Chris Hemsworth's Extraction 2 and Jennifer Lopez's The Mother, which each notched 175 million to 178 million hours in, the, in that same time period. All three movies, along with Zack Snyder's upcoming two-part film, Rebel Moon, represent a swiftly disappearing notion in the streaming world. The big-budget, English-language streaming movie is becoming a comparative rarity. As one industry executive told The Wrap, peak streaming is over. Wall Street no longer loves it. Compared to just a couple of years ago, the sheer amount of direct-to-streaming movies has plummeted. Netflix, which pioneered big-budget streaming movies, will release just above 40 English-language films in 2023, compared to 75 in 2022. Insiders and analysts blame a change in financial tune. Wall Street no longer rewards spending big bucks for big streaming movies as a show of force. They wanted subscription figures at all costs from 2017 to 2022, but now they want revenue and profit. Years of streaming viewership data have shown that on the whole, titles released first in theaters perform better on streaming than direct-to-consumer pictures. In late February of 2023, Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav outright admitted that HBO Max movies were providing really no value to us. That echoed his year-long rebuttal of, of both AT&T's emphasis on HBO Max content and conventional wisdom within the entertainment industry, where his sentiments have now become industry-wide policy, as reported by Scott Mendelson of The Wrap. This article is striking in how it reveals the state of original streaming movies on platforms such as Netflix, Hulu, and Disney+. Remembering during the pandemic when platforms like Warner Brothers Max would release their theatrical films on its platform instead of in theaters, Although recent, I found that was an interesting moment in time as it felt like this was the going to be the model going forward. How it would affect movie theaters if you could just watch the latest blockbuster in the comfort of your living room. It was alarming in a way because as we saw the movie theater trains across the U.S. were being hurt not only by these practices but the pandemic as well. So... To continue on, continue on with the article, it brings up a lot of interesting points. As with most things in the streaming world, Netflix stated the notion of the streaming original movie, which the rest of the industry eventually tried to copy. Netflix began releasing its own original features beginning with Idris Elba's Beast of No Nation and Adam Sandler's The Ridiculous Six in 2015. They offered big Hollywood stars, high production quality, and production values approximating the theatrical programmer. Moreover, in the mid-2010s, when Hollywood was chasing the Avengers and becoming more IP-focused, the promise of the Netflix original was a safe space for star and, and character-driven mid-budget high-concept movies that weren't dependent upon marquee characters, franchise nostalgia, or four-quadrant global appeal. Even would-be blockbusters like Bright were closer in spirit to the non-IP star concept tentpoles of the pre-9-11 era. Moreover, the article talks about how Wall Street played into all of this. Nonetheless, Wall Street loved Netflix and essentially treated it like a tech company instead of an entertainment studio. With viewership mostly hidden, the the streaming giant got credit for a project merely existing, regardless of whether the final product was any good or appealed to audiences. Today, streamers are no longer being rewarded by Wall Street for big-budget movies with A-level movie stars. Think Netflix, Red Notice, or Apple TV's Ghosted, which approximates the stereotypical theatrical blockbuster. The investor class now wants revenue and profits. The notion of loading up on pricey content to boost subscription numbers is so 2020. Jumping around the article, it also talks about the removal of certain films. 
shows, you know, within these platforms. Netflix has a massive participatory user base that presses play on almost any piece of new Netflix content, but its rivals haven't had the same luck. Netflix will argue that tons of folks watch Extraction 2 or Don't Look Up. There is little evidence to suggest that the other platforms' originals like HBO Max's Father of the Pride or Hulu's The Valet pulled in anywhere near that level of viewership. Hocus Pocus 2 was an initial Disney Plus rating smash with 2.75 billion minutes in its opening weekend. The same can't be said for Disenchanted. Looking at the slew of Disney Plus original movies, many from acquired brands like 20th Century Studios, it was seen that Hocus Pocus 2 was the exception to the rule. Likewise, titles like The Princess and Timmy Failure were pulled from Hulu and Disney Plus. This was allegedly due to low viewership. However, since streamers keep their viewership data so close to the chest, it's unclear if that is accurate. The official reason is to save money on licensing and residual fees. That said, streamers don't generally remove high-rated first-party content from their platforms. It makes sense that streamers want to hide the flops, and maybe the content creators want that hidden too, noted Reese. It's been nice for artists to not have to worry about ratings or viewership. She stressed that this shroud of mystery concerning the viewership data for most streaming films and shows is a big sticking point amid the ongoing labor stoppage. Lastly, um, from the article, Wall Street no longer rewards making streaming movies just to create streaming volume. Theatrical releases, even box office bombs like Dungeons & Dragons, generally outpace direct-to-consumers films and raw viewership while making a bigger mark in pop culture. Netflix and Amazon are making fewer overall movies while expanding their audience far beyond North America. When streamers can choose between spending $100 million on a feature film or a season of television, the choice is that much clearer. Even Netflix gets much more value out of third-party theatricals like The Woman King and young adult-targeted cheapies like The Kissing Booth versus megabucks would-be blockbusters like Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. Hollywood has perhaps realized that streaming movies don't pay, argued that industry executive. Streaming the future of television and blockbuster, which is what they replace, leave theatrical to theatrical. Again, um, article reported by Scott Mendelson of The Wrap. This article is linked in the episode description of this podcast. But yeah, to wrap up, streaming is rapidly changing with practices like this, and it leaves the future of streaming in a very interesting place right now. Jumping back to a previous point, um, streaming services are also removing original programming from their platforms. And it's interesting because these are the only ways for these programmings to be viewed by the general public. So when these movies and shows are are removed from platforms like Hulu and Disney+, it almost becomes lost media in a way. Um, This next article I'm about to bring up, this was another article written by Scott Mendelson. It says, In what has become a grim reality of the next phase of the streaming era, 60 movies and television shows have left Disney Plus and Hulu. That includes Sundance, crowd pleasers like Timmy Failure, initially intended for theatrical releases like Artemis Fowl and the once in future Ivan, big budget IP adaptations like Willow and Why the Last Man, and high concept young adult dramedies like Stargirl and Rosaline. One such casualty is The Princess. Released in August of 2022, the original high concept hybrid of Die Hard and The Raid features Joey King, star of the Kissing Booth trilogy, as a princess trapped in a tower having to fight and cure her way floor by floor to save herself and her family from a violent coup attempt. It's the kind of clever genre exercise that might have been a theatrical release a generation ago. Had it been given a theatrical release, however, token, it would also have been available on DVD, VOD, and related revenue streams eventually. But now, once it leaves Hulu, reportedly for a tax write-down, it could vanish never to be legally seen again. In the article, he sits down with screenwriters Ben Lustig and Jake Thornton who worked on the film. What they said in the interview is actually quite interesting. 
I won't read the whole thing, but I'll pull up an excerpt from both of them. Jake Thornton said, Our understanding of it is that if you are going to write something off in the way Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zasloff did with Batgirl, you cannot make any more money on it or you lose the write down. For that to happen, it cannot be anywhere. It's ultimately coming down to what we feel the WGA is striking against, which is this complete corporatization of our love of movies that we write and pour our souls into, which they just consider content. Now, the entertainment industry has always been a business, but you at least felt that there were people who owned the studios or ran the studios who really loved movies. It just feels like it's going away because it's all about shareholders and stock prices. With Ben Lustig adding, There are a lot of people who work at the studios, including those at high levels, who do love movies. The executives who worked on The Princess genuinely wanted it to make a great movie. They are probably just as disappointed as we are. There are places where costs can be cut. The idea of making a quick write-down that will show a substantial change on the balance sheet at the expense of the future of the expression of all these artists is a real shame. Ben Lustig also said in the interview, I feel like we've had the, the opportunity in Hollywood to make a movie that bombed at the box office like Blade Runner, for example, and turn it into a cult classic. If we're entering a phase whereby anything that doesn't perform within the first six months, they are going to take a tax write-down on it, all of these movies that might become cult classics and cultural influences might just vanish. Physical media really helps. The studios have not figured out how to monetize streaming in the way that they monetize DVDs. We're in this weird place right now, where the write-down is more valuable. Maybe when they figure this out, they'll figure out a way to monetize the princess in a way we couldn't even see today. Again, this was another article written by Scott Mendelson of The Wrap. But yeah, in conclusion, this is actually really striking that studios are starting to turn entertainment into like a profit factory. I understand that the entertainment industry has always been a business since its very beginning, but now it's become more blatant. And with the WGA going on strike, a lot of these issues are coming to light. I also find it kind of scary how films can be removed from these platforms, never to be seen again from the general public, um, with films like The Princess and The Batgirl effectively becoming lost media right before our eyes. It's very compelling to see where this will all go, how streaming is rapidly changing and the harmful practices going on behind the scenes. It leaves one wondering if it will cause a dynamic shift in how we consume content and entertainment in the future. Only time will tell. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of The Popular Journal, where I look at all the media I consume from an analytic point of view. Just a reminder that the end of season one of The Popular Journal podcast is approaching, and I will be taking a break to make season two of the podcast much more enjoyable for you guys. The survey linked in all descriptions of the podcast episodes really helps a lot because it enables me to look at the strengths of the podcast as well as its weaknesses. So if you could fill out the survey, that would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. I want to make season two of the podcast really good, not only for me, but for you guys as well. I want it to be informative while also being entertaining. And I I want to make sure that I'm able to hold your guys' attention and to be able to just have like a fun moment of looking at the stuff we consume uh, in pop culture and history and, and have like a fun little retrospective, you know, for like 30 minutes out of your day. So I hope to do more of that in season two. And I'm very excited to see where this podcast will go from here. I really hope the podcast only goes up from here. I'm very optimistic. But if you've been here since the beginning, I just wanted to thank you for tuning into my podcast. And I really appreciate the support. Like, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to me talk about the stuff that I personally find enjoyable within, you know, like entertainment and like pop culture and like historical retrospectives on the type of media we consume in our lives. 
And if you are new to this podcast, I want to thank you for checking out and giving it a chance. Again, I love talking about this stuff, and I'm glad I'm able to find an audience who also likes talking about these topics as well as much as I do. But that about wraps up this episode of The Popular Journal. Join me again next time. I hope to see you guys again. Have a great rest of your week. Bye. Go, go.